Good morning and welcome to RTHK's Hong Kong Today. I'm Janice Wong. And I'm Vicky Wong. Coming up, Hong Kong is urged to tackle so-called hidden threats to national security. Britain is to discuss new laws to try and stop the record numbers of migrants crossing the English Channel. We'll get details from our UK correspondent. Transport workers in the Philippines strike over a government plan to phase out jeepneys. And at the Hong Kong Sevens, the Hong Kong men's team play France, Great Britain and Uruguay, while the women's team face New Zealand. Chief Executive John Lee says top Beijing official Xia Baolong has called on Hong Kong to tackle possible threats against national security. The CE also says Mr. Shah endorsed the work of the SAR government. He met the mainland official on a visit to the capital. Violet Wong reports. The chief executive spoke to reporters after returning from Beijing, where he attended the opening session of the National People's Congress. John Lee said he met with the director of the Hong Kong and Macau Affairs Office, Xia Baolong, in the capital. Mr. Lee said the senior Beijing official reminded him that national security risks remain in the SAR and the government must stay vigilant. The CE says the administration will step up efforts in risk assessment and intelligence gathering. We will definitely crack down on any forces trying to undermine national security or breach the peace of Hong Kong society or hurt Hong Kong's overall interests and hold them legally responsible under the law. The CE also says Mr. Xia recognized the work of the SAR government in the past eight months. He quoted the mainland official as saying that he was happy that the administration has showed a sense of responsibility in working for the people. Mr. Lee added that President Xi Jinping also expressed his concern and encouragement for Hong Kong as he seeks to boost the economy and improve people's livelihoods. Violet Wong. Former Housing Secretary Frank Chan says he finds it exciting and challenging to take on a new role as a member of the country's top legislature. It's the first time that an ex-Hong Kong government official has been appointed to the National People's Congress. Mr Chan told RTHK during an exclusive interview that his priority was to win people's hearts by telling them the truth about our nation. He spoke to Kelly Yu via video link in Beijing. Being uh, Hong Kong's deputy to the National People's Congress is indeed a challenge as well as an excitement for myself. Because at a time when we uh, were working in Hong Kong as a political appointee or as a civil servant, then most of the time we will be looking at things or issues from the perspective of Hong Kong. But at the same time, we also take care of the nation's need. But being a Hong Kong's deputy to the People's uh, Congress, then we must take issues from the country's perspective, at a height or horizon that is at the national level, and to take care of Hong Kong's need at the same time. But we have to admit that there is a kind of need for us to bring the two together for mutual collaboration and beneficial for both sides. And that's the, the challenge that we need to look into. Of course, at time, there might be differences, then we would need to work it out and uh, collaborate to find a solution. As for your expectations of this year's two sessions, what are the most pressing issues of Hong Kong at the moment and what kind of proposals would you hope to push forward in the country's legislature? Hong Kong is having a very high percentage of elderly people as time goes by and therefore we need to put into measures to provide the basic and necessary and support for all these people 
who might need this kind of uh, assistance. And therefore, if we could bring uh, the kind of practice into the mainland, particularly in the Quaker Bay area as a pilot, then we would be able to create a new uh, industry in innovative technology research in elderly care, and also eventually to improve the service standard uh, for every one of us, as well as the production of uh, these innovative equipment and technology in the mainland. At a time when Hong Kong is recovering from the pandemic, and with uh, borders open, these are the things that which are physical in terms uh, because uh, the number of passengers or goods being transported between the boundary and with the loop would eventually come back. But uh, the challenge uh, now we are facing would be the return of people's heart. By saying so, we need to tell more about the truth about our country and the status of where we, that we are in and uh, what's happening in 2019, and the way that we have to let the younger generations know the history about our country, and to let them feel about things uh, actually happening in the, in the mainland, because uh, seeing is believing. Right. And um, as the former housing secretary, uh, what kind of proposals would you put forward to tackle the city's housing crisis? And do you think the the existing light public housing scheme could be a way out for the city? Well, first of all, I think for Hong Kong's housing issue, we have to settle it uh, by ourselves. Because for people who are living in Hong Kong, we, then we have the sole and primary responsibilities to solve it. As for the light public housing, uh, I must say that it's a new initiative. And one other thing that we can do to help relieve the price of those living in subdivided units, the more the better, the faster the better. And therefore the challenge is uh, the speed, the volume and the quality that we are providing in, in the near future in terms of the light public housing. Former Housing Secretary Frank Chan speaking there to Kelly Yu. Mainland authorities have described last year's economic progress as very impressive in the face of a turbulent external financial environment. The National Development and Reform Commission says the growth momentum is in line with Premier Li Keqiang's projection of a 5% growth in 2023 and that it has full confidence it can achieve this target. Kelly Yu reports from Beijing. A vice chairman of the NDRC, Zhao Chenxing, told a press conference in Beijing during the outgoing NPC session that the nation's GDP in 2022 had reached a new level. He was commenting on the 3% growth year-on-year to over 120 trillion yuan, describing it as equivalent to the annual GDP increase of a medium-sized country. Mr. Zhao said the recovery of people and goods mobility is speeding up and that other economic metrics have been stable. Against the backdrop of a 40-year high of global inflation, China's prices have been stable. The year-round CPI growth was 2% only. 12.06 million new urban jobs were created, exceeding our target for 2022. GDP, CPI, employment and international payments are the most important indicators. So if we look at those indicators, China has been very outstanding. His comments come as some analysts voice concern that it may be difficult for the country to reach the projected 5% GDP growth for 2023 as the country emerges from the pandemic. 
But Mr. Jia said that growth target is in line with current economic momentum, adding that the country will tackle risks related to property, finance, and local government debt. Another vice chairman of the state planner, Li Chenning, told the same briefing that consumption is expected to be the main driver of the nation's economic growth this year. He said some major indicators are likely to pick up gradually in the first half of the year, and that the NDRC will introduce policies to boost demand. Kelly Yu. The Labour Department says it has initiated dozens of prosecutions over a fatal crane collapse last September. The disaster at a construction site on Anderson Road killed three people and injured six others. The Housing Society, meanwhile, said all tower cranes which had been removed from the site after the accident would go back into operation this month following additional safety checks. It said the housing project was expected to be completed by 2026. Vanessa Cheng reports. The Labour Department said it has completed an investigation into the incident in which the crane came crashing down onto several containers serving as makeshift offices at the Housing Society site in Sao Maoping. The department found that a welded joint had been pulled apart causing the crane to fall. It said that, after consulting the Department of Justice, it has initiated 67 prosecutions against contractors, subcontractors and a number of individuals. The crane collapse claimed the lives of three workers and injured six. Labour officials added that they have inspected construction sites with cranes across the city in a bid to curb any unsafe operations. Vanessa Cheng reporting. The Transport Commissioner says the government is considering tightening health check requirements for commercial drivers. It follows a traffic accident in Fortress Hill on Sunday involving an 84-year-old taxi driver. Maggie Ho reports. Speaking on a commercial radio program, Rosanna Law said while old age does not necessarily mean poor health, checks can reveal any underlying problems. Right now, commercial drivers who are 70 or over have to do a health check every one to three years when they renew their license. We're looking at whether there's room to adjust the age or frequency requirement. But the Transport Commissioner also pointed out that the number of traffic accidents involving older motorists is not particularly higher than the number involving younger people. And the government has no plan to put a cap on the age of commercial drivers. People can be old but healthy and strong, she said. And some people have to keep driving to make ends meet. Meanwhile, Ng Kwan Singh, who chairs the Taxi Dealers and Owners Association, urged the government to promote regular health checks for all drivers. It can work with trade associations or other drivers' groups to promote body checks, Mr Ng told an RTHK program, adding that underlying illnesses don't exist only at a certain age. DAB legislator Ben Chen, for his part, says the government should lower the age requirement for mandatory health screening to drive Drivers aged 65 and above. Maggie Ho. An international meeting of scientists and ethical experts has heard concerns that new rules on gene editing introduced in China aren't tough enough to stop medical malpractice. China is seeking to become a world leader in the field, but one expert told the conference in London that the Chinese authorities may struggle to regulate the private sector. The BBC's Palab Ghosh reports. Gene editing enables researchers to make precise alterations to a person's DNA at an early embryonic stage, but it's not yet been proven to be safe to use in practice. 
there was an outcry at claims five years ago by Chinese scientists that he'd created children that had been genetically altered to be resistant to HIV. Dr. He Jian Qiu was imprisoned for three years. Chinese authorities have recently introduced stricter rules for the use of the technology, setting out requirements for ethical approval, supervision and inspections. But Dr. Joy Zhang, an expert on controls on gene technology in China, told delegates at the gene editing meeting in London that she was concerned that Dr. Hay was able to set up clinical research on another inherited disorder a year after his release from prison. We could actually be looking at a quite simple case of regulatory negligence. Who is keeping an eye on, on him and what kind of approval he has and uh, he needs to seek? Any talk of accountable research or uh, good governance in China would be hypocritical. A spokesperson for the Chinese Academy of Science told the conference that the country had accelerated the introduction of new laws on gene editing and they were in accordance with international standards. But other scientists at the meeting backed the view that China's regulation of gene editing may still fall short, particularly when it comes to keeping an eye on private companies. Others, though, say it's not an issue only for the Chinese, and Western nations, too, need to keep a close eye on how bioscience firms forge ahead with this exciting but controversial technology. Britain's leading refugee charity says the government's plan to stop people crossing the English Channel in small boats will lead to tens of thousands of refugees being locked up like criminals. New legislation is set to be tabled later today that would ban anyone arriving this way from ever returning to the UK. Enver Solomon is from the Refugee Council. Let's not forget who these people are. They're men, women and children from countries like Afghanistan where they're fleeing the beatings and persecution of the Taliban. And also countries like Eritrea and Syria, where bullets and bombs are shattering their lives. The opposition says it's simply a gimmick which won't work. Here's West Streeting of the Labour Party. What the government's doing is a cynical rehash of previous failed immigration policies in the hope that by generating headlines with unworkable policies, the public might might be duped into thinking they're finally doing something about small boats. Well, let's get more details on what the government wants to do from our UK correspondent, Gavin Gray. Good morning, Gavin. Hi there, Becky. So the legislation will be tabled later today. What can you tell us about its content? Well, we don't know all the details yet, um, but a lot has already been leaked in the um, government-supporting media. Certainly at the weekend, a couple of uh, big articles were published and... uh, saying that the Prime Minister is determined to get a grip on illegal migration uh, and we are, as you said, expected to hear uh, the outline of these plans in just a few hours' time. Now, basically, these proposed measures will apply to anyone arriving on British shores in a small boat and, of course, most of those are coming across the English Channel. Um, And uh, under this new legislation, those channel migrants, as they're called, would be removed from the UK banned from future re-entry and barred from applying for British citizenship. In other words, the moment anyone comes over in a small boat, they would effectively be told, you are not going to get into the UK. The idea, we believe, is that the Home Secretary would then uh, have to remove all those arriving on boats and then take them to a safe third country as soon as reasonably practical, or indeed to Rwanda. Now, Rwanda in uh, West Africa is where the government has already built 
a base from where, uh, with the permission of the Rwandan government, they will send people who have come over in the small boats in order to judge their merits of whether they should then be allowed to settle in the UK. But doing that while they're based in Rwanda. If they are unsuccessful, they can either try and go back to the country they came from or live in Rwanda. So how feasible is this solution? Well, certainly you, you heard the comments of uh, uh, one critic, the Refugee uh, Council, saying that this is not going to work. It's unworkable, costly, and it won't stop the boats. And that, of course, is actually what everyone, I think, is trying to do here, because it isn't so much that people on them aren't very worthy, potentially, of coming over. It is the fact that they are paying so much money to get here uh, to people smugglers. And it's the people smugglers, frankly, who don't care whether the boats sink and people darn it or not. It is just an enormously profitable business for them. Uh, the uh, Labour uh, opposition party says the measures are the latest in a long line of unworkable gimmicks. And uh, the uh, various other charities have come out uh, as well against them, including perhaps most notably Amnesty International, which called them disgraceful posturing and scaremongering. Now, uh, we heard earlier the response from government critics like the Labour Party and Rishi Sunak announced stopping the small boats as one of his key pledges earlier this year. What has been the response from the Conservative Party, the Conservative government? Well, I think lots of, um, uh, of the uh, MPs are very supportive. It is a very, very difficult issue. Nobody has an answer to it, but I think everyone agrees it can't be allowed to continue. Last year, 46,000 people made the journey and arrived in the shores, and those are the ones we know about. Uh, it is thought that number could be much, much bigger simply arriving uh, on the coastline and not being detected. Only 1,556 were deported last year, so 46,000 arrived, 1,500 were deported, and each of those deportations by chartered aircraft ending up costing more than a first-class ticket to New York because of so many last-minute appeals. So the government lines up all these people that it's going to deport, uh, fills an aircraft with them, and then within moments of takeoff, they're taking uh, lots of them off or not taken to the airport at all because of last-minute appeals, and that's what makes it so expensive. But every single day of the week and every single day of the month and the year, it is costing the British economy some £7 million a day to house those waiting for a decision on asylum status while they are being put up in a hotel. And they're being put up in hotels quite simply because there is nowhere else to keep them. Now, earlier you mentioned the Rwanda policy. Last month, the High Court ruled that the scheme is legal, but it is possibly facing further challenges in courts. Have there been any updates on that? Well, certainly I think we are likely to see uh, more uh, legal action after the announcement on Tuesday about what the Home Secretary Suella Braverman will be announcing. Uh, but we also do believe, yes, that uh, uh, there could be other uh, groups uh, ready to mount legal challenges to this. We believe that uh, currently asylum seekers arriving in the UK, they do have a right to seek protection under the UN's Refugee Convention and the European Convention on Human Rights. It is being suggested that there will be a clause in the new bill or law to apply what's being called a rights break, and that would effectively allow the conventions to be circumvented, in other words, ignored. Now, it's not clear how this would work. 
Another thing we're expecting to hear tomorrow is very, very unusually, the Home Secretary will propose that this law is backdated to the moment she stands up in Parliament tomorrow. And that is quite simply because many of the people smugglers know that if this is announced tomorrow, as we expect it to be, it could then be challenged. And that could take years to go through the courts. All the while, therefore, putting a tighter and tighter deadline on those trying to cross, raising prices charged by people smugglers and making the situation much worse. All right, we're going to have to leave it there. Thank you for joining us this morning. That was our UK correspondent, Gavin Gray. Time for a look at some business news. Thousands of transport workers across the Philippines have started a nationwide strike. They're protesting against a government plan to phase out traditional jeepney minibuses and other ageing transport vehicles. The BBC's Celia Hatton reports. For many in the Philippines, the home-produced jeepney minibuses are a fond reminder of days past. Jeepneys were originally fashioned out of the military jeeps left behind by American troops after the Second World War. They were converted into brightly painted, cheap and cheerful minibuses. But the government's determined to get rid of them now. It's saying the jeepneys are unsafe and responsible for urban smog. Many jeepney drivers have already rejected a government offer to partially subsidize the purchase of new vehicles, saying they still can't afford the switch. And a quick look at the markets. Wall Street stocks have traded slightly higher ahead of key jobs data and congressional testimony from Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell. The Dow and S&P rose marginally to 33,431 and 4,048 respectively. The Nasdaq edged down 11,675. We'll have the sports next. Take a happy ride with Joy, your card. Just tap and feel the joy of getting around. Hey, pals over 65, you must apply for a Joy U card in phases by the end of this year. Your current octopus will not be covered under the $2 scheme in future. Hong Kong residents born in 1946 and 47 must apply for a Joy U card in March and April via Octopus app or by post. For details, visit the Joy U card website or call 3147-1388. Good morning. I'm Adam Jung with Sports. We start with rugby as the draw has been made for this year's Hong Kong Sevens. The hosts will play France, Great Britain and Uruguay in the group stage of the men's tournament. Defending champions Australia will face USA, Spain and Japan. The 2023 edition of the city's largest sporting event features an upgraded women's tournament as the SAR's men's and women's teams are simultaneously competing in the Sevens World Series. Hong Kong's women have been drawn to face the World Series leaders New Zealand. The tournament kicks off at Hong Kong Stadium on March 31st. Next to football, the West London Derby match in the Premier League saw Brentford winning 3-2 at home over Fulham. Matthias Jensen's goal on 85 minutes proved to be decisive despite a late consolation from Carlos Vinicius deep into added time which came too late for Fulham. Now, Sunday's 7-0 victory for Liverpool over Manchester United is still being talked about. United forward Marcus Rashford says their season must not be defined by that result. It equaled United's heaviest defeat ever and their worst result against Liverpool. Their former goalkeeper Peter Schmeichel believes it's most important they bounce back right away, unlike the United teams that he was involved in.
The first one was Newcastle. We lost it 5-3. Conceding five goals was the first time we did that. And then we went to Southampton and conceded six. So we didn't improve. <laughs> Actually, we got worse. The third game was a Chelsea game at Old Trafford on the Wednesday. And then we lost it 1-0. So we lost three consecutive games. In that 10-day period, really difficult to understand at some point, you have to draw a line and move on to the next game because the next game is just around the corner. Of course, it's Betis on Thursday. So the next game is already, you know, three days away. You have to clear the air. You have to say, yeah, this wasn't good and this was wrong. That We have to change this and that and that. And then we move on. You cannot keep turning back to a bad defeat. Manchester United play Real Betis in the last 16 of the Europa League on Thursday, while Liverpool's next European action is next Wednesday when they visit Real Madrid for the second leg, 5-2 down with a lot of work to do if they want to make it through to the quarterfinals of the Champions League. Former Liverpool midfielder Ray Houghton says their focus should be on the Premier League with their next game against Bournemouth on Saturday. I think the other teams around them, the likes of Newcastle, uh, Tottenham Hotspur, who are just ahead of them at the moment, I will be worried with what they've seen. And not just because what happened yesterday, it's what, what's been happening at Liverpool for the last few weeks. And even in that 5-2 defeat against Real Madrid, you know, the first half was one of the most entertaining 45 minutes of football I've seen all season. Two top-class sides going head-to-head. Now, Liverpool have overcome adversity like this before, but it was at home against Barcelona a few seasons ago in the Champions League. I'm not sure they'll do it against Real Madrid. Having watched Real Madrid in that match, I thought they were brilliant. You know, there's a reason why they're current European champions and world club champions as well. It's because they're a very good side. They've got good depth to the team. Everyone knows their job. So it's an uphill battle. I think for Liverpool, getting into that top, top four is the most important thing come the end of the season. Neymar has promised to come back stronger after Paris Saint-Germain announced that the Brazilian star requires ankle surgery and will be out for three to four months. More from the BBC's Mass Faruqi. It's been a bit of a miserable time for Neymar, hasn't it? Brazil, of course, didn't have a great Qatar World Cup and then his return to PSG picked up a serious ankle sprain on February the 20th, the latest of what the club described as several episodes of instability in his right ankle in recent years. And following this, medical staff, the club continued, recommended a ligament repair operation to avoid a major risk of recurrence. That surgery is expected to take place in Doha, and finally, there was one game in Spain's La Liga. It finished goalless between Osasuna and Celta Vigo. Osasuna are three points outside the top six. And for now, that's all the sports. Thanks, Atom. The weather forecast for today, fine and dry with a top temperature of around 24 degrees. Winds moderate easterlies. The red fire danger warning is currently in force and the outlook fine and warm in the next couple of days. Right now, the temperature reading at the observatory is 18 degrees, relative humidity 49%. RTHK, the news at seven with Todd Harding. An international meeting of scientists and ethical experts in London has heard that new rules on gene editing have been introduced in China. The mainland is seeking to become a world leader in the field. The BBC's Palab Ghosh reports. Gene editing enables researchers to make precise alterations to a person's DNA at an early embryonic stage, but it's not yet been proven to be safe to use in practice. Chinese authorities have recently introduced stricter rules for the use of the technology, setting out requirements for ethical approval, supervision and inspections. 
The spokesperson for the Chinese Academy of Science told the conference that the country had accelerated the introduction of new laws on gene editing. One month after the catastrophic earthquakes in Turkey and Syria, many aid workers say the devastation remains all but total. One senior Red Cross official said most of the physical and social fabric of the places affected needed to be completely rebuilt. Magnus Korfixen is with Oxfam in Antakya in southern Turkey. Families and individuals are in need of the most basic items and services, and that's everything from shelter, people having access to proper tents or just a place to stay, access to food, and then access to clean water. So we're talking about like the most basic necessities, which is a need right now. Iran's supreme leader Ayatollah Ali Khamenei has described a chain of poisonings targeting Iranian schoolgirls as an unforgivable crime. In his first public comments on the attacks, he said there would be no amnesty for those found to be responsible. Over a thousand girls and women in schools and universities across Iran have suffered symptoms since the poisonings began in Qom in November. It's prompted some parents to take their children out of school. The Ayatollah said the cases must be fully investigated. This is not a small crime. This is a crime against the most innocent part of society, meaning children, and is causing fear and insecurity in the minds of society and of families. These are not small matters. They must be seriously pursued. A United Nations report says the Taliban's treatment of women and girls in Afghanistan could amount to a crime against humanity. The UN Special Rapporteur for Afghanistan is Richard Bennett. The Taliban's intentional and calculated policy is to repudiate the human rights of women and girls and to erase them from public life. It may amount to the international crime of gender persecution for which the authorities can be held accountable. The cumulative effect of the restrictions on women and girls has a devastating long-term impact on the whole population and it is tantamount to gender apartheid. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Thanks to Todd Harding in our newsroom. This is Hong Kong Today with Janice Wong and me, Vicky Wong. Coming up in the next half hour, we hear from the birdwatching society that says many new glass buildings in Hong Kong are resulting in more bird collisions. This is a really big trap to birds because they will be faked by the unreal image they see in the glass. One month on from the earthquakes in Turkey and Syria, one and a half million people are living in tents. And insiders say Twitter can no longer protect users from trolls. But first, Chief Executive John Lee says top Beijing official Sha Baolong has called on Hong Kong to be ready to tackle so-called hidden forces seeking to undermine Hong Kong's social stability. Mr Lee was speaking to reporters after flying back from Beijing, where he attended the opening of the National People's Congress session. He said Mr Shah, who's director of the Hong Kong and Macau Affairs Office, reminded him that national security risks still existed in the SAR. We will definitely crack down on any forces trying to undermine national security or breach the peace of Hong Kong society or hurt Hong Kong's overall interests and hold them legally responsible under the law. Mainland authorities have described last year's economic progress as very impressive in the face of a turbulent external financial environment. A vice chairman of the State Council's National Development and Reform Commission, Zhao Chenxin, told reporters at a press conference that the nation's GDP in 2022 had reached a new level. 
China's GDP has reached a new level of 120 trillion yuan, with an increase of 6.1 trillion yuan, which is equivalent to the annual GDP growth of a medium-sized country. GDP, CPI, consumer prices, employment, and international payments are the most important indicators. So, if we look at those indicators, China has been very outstanding among major economies in the world. The Housing Bureau says it's looking into whether subsidized home rules need to be tightened amid reports a suspect in the murder of socialite Abby Choi bought a government-subsidized flat, despite also owning a luxury property worth tens of millions of dollars. Frank Young reports. Local media earlier reported that Abby Choi's former father-in-law purchased a unit in Kuaichung under the Green Form Subsidized Home Ownership Scheme for Public Flat Tenants. Even though he already owned a high-end private flat in Hamantan, during a legislative council meeting, roundtable lawmaker Michael Tian described the situation as ridiculous, and said the government should proactively check if a subsidized housing applicant already owns property. In response, Permanent Secretary for Housing Agnes Wong said she would not comment on specific cases, but conceded that the government does not vet the assets of green form applicants. She spoke through an interpreter. The principle is that if PRH residents have the ability to afford flats, then they should do so as soon as possible, so that they can vacate the PRH flat as soon as possible. We believe that the majority of the PRH tenants are not like this. But with such an extreme case appeared, we are looking into whether or not we should tighten the regulations. Perhaps we should review this further and discuss it with the housing authority. Ms. Wong said it is important to stop people from trying to abuse the home ownership scheme. Frank Young, a man who's accused of trying to help one of the suspects in the murder of model Abby Choi flee Hong Kong, has appeared in court. He's been freed on bail ahead of his next court appearance in May. Violet Wong reports. Forty-one-year-old Lam Shun appeared in Kowloon City Court. The defendant, who works at a yacht company, was released on bail and is due back in court on May the 8th. He is charged with assisting Choi's ex-husband Alex Kwong with an alleged bid to escape to Macau by yacht on the 24th of last month. Choi's former husband is in custody along with his brother and father after the trio were charged with murdering the socialite, whose dismembered body was discovered last month. Violet Wong reporting. The ICAC has reported a 19% drop in corruption complaints last year. It says Hong Kong's graft situation remains well under control, as Maggie Ho reports. The ICAC recorded an across-the-board drop in the number of complaints it received in 2022. There were 1,835 corruption complaints unrelated to elections, down 19% from 2021. Among them, more than 1,400 cases were pursuable. The ICAC says the civil service and public bodies remain generally clean and honest, with the number of complaints involving government bureaus and departments down by 17% to 533. Complaints concerning the private sector fell by 20 percent to 1,181. Sectors that drew the most complaints were building management, construction, finance, and insurance. The anti-graft body says the decrease in overall complaints may have to do with a slowdown in economic activities among the pandemic.
and there were 135 complaints relating to the election committee subsector elections, the legislative council polls, the chief executive election, and the rural representative election. The ICAC also announced in his annual report that it will set up an international anti-corruption academy to provide training for local and overseas law enforcement agencies, as well as the local, public and private sectors. Maggie Ho. The Hong Kong Birdwatching Society says the use of reflective materials in new infrastructure in the city is causing more birds to crash into buildings. The group recorded about 200 cases in the final three months of last year, and more than 90% of them were fatal. Surfaces made of glass can reflect natural landscapes and create an illusion for birds. The society's conservation officer, Wan Sut Mei, told Vanessa Cheng that requiring buildings to use anti-collision materials could help resolve the problem. Because birds cannot see the glass as a barrier and they often hit the window because they thought that the image in the glass reflects a kind of their habitat and so they will hit the windows and they may injured or died. So what kind of surfaces may lead to more bird collisions? Mostly the mirrored surface or some glass surface of the high-rise building or even a shopping mall and in private houses just because there are glass or mirror surfaces. So how many buildings in Hong Kong have a high risk? I think recently the buildings are very often they will use glass and some mirror structures as the outer design, maybe because of the modernization style or, or something. But in the business area in Kowloon Bay or in North Point, we have a lot of cases that are related to the new commercial buildings that made of large, extensive mirror glass or reflective surface. This is a really big trap to birds because they will be faked by the unreal image they see in the glass. So actually there are numerous buildings in Hong Kong have walls made of glass or reflective materials and especially some new infrastructure as you mentioned. So are there any ways to prevent birds hitting the windows? Yeah, I think uh, if this is a new building, it is very good that they can early adopt building designs that are favorable for birds and that they can reduce the use of the glass and also mirrors uh, materials. For an old building, the, the only way it will be to uh, do some preventive measures like uh, stick the anti-collision stickers. So how are other countries doing to prevent birds hitting the windows? Are there any countries that we can take reference on? Uh, in New York, uh, they have a law introduced to restrict all the buildings that are made of glass or mirror materials below certain level. They have to adopt anti-bird collisions materials. It is a mandatory measure. Although Hong Kong is quite a lag behind, but we can still start now. That's Wang Shitmei from the Hong Kong Bird Watching Society. It's now coming up to 12 minutes past seven on Hong Kong Today. The United Nations has warned that hundreds of thousands of people in Turkey and Syria are in desperate need of humanitarian aid. One month after powerful earthquakes devastated both countries, over 50,000 people were killed. Last month, the UN launched an appeal of one billion US dollars to assist survivors in Turkey. But Alvaro Rodriguez, the UN's resident coordinator in Turkey, said only 10% of that appeal has been funded. The reality is that if we do not move beyond the roughly 10% that we have, 
the UN and its partners will not be able to meet the humanitarian needs. This is an issue of humanity and protecting the lives of people that through no fault on their own have been placed in harm's way as a result of the earthquake. Unfortunately, given the number of people that have been, uh, uh, that have relocated, given the number of people that have been injured, and given the level of the devastation, uh, we do have extensive humanitarian needs now, and I think they will continue to remain with us in the weeks to come. We have some provinces where up to 25% of the population, we're talking sometimes half a million people have relocated. So the challenge we have is how do we provide food, shelter, water for these communities? The UN estimates that 2 million people in Turkey have moved away and 1.5 million are living in tents. Jamie Lasseur is the head of emergency operations at the International Federation of Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies. He described the scale of devastation in the Turkish city of Antakya. I've seen a lot of the devastated cities in, in, in the affected area. And we're talking about a city the size of Manchester that has been leveled. It just goes on and on and on and on. And it's surprising and shocking, even for those of us who do this for a living, to see that level of devastation, because it's not just, it's not just the buildings that have collapsed, it's the social fabric, the restaurants, the banks, the supermarkets that have been destroyed here. So as we go back to building shelters and the long-term reconstruction effort for homes, there's also the element of the social and the community infrastructure that still needs to be built. In Syria, the damage amounts to at least a tenth of its GDP, compounding years of destruction from civil war. Chiran Levera, the head of emergency operations for Syria with the Red Cross and Red Crescent, is based in the regional capital, Aleppo. We're seeing thousands of people that still require humanitarian assistance. Over the last month, the Red Crescent teams here in Syria have been providing emergency food, water, health services, and many other things to almost a million people. And we know that we need to accompany people through their recovery process for the next number of weeks and months. So there's still significant humanitarian needs ahead of us, but we're doing the best we can to reach all the people. Sheltering is a big service that we're providing. So there's people with other families that are called host families, where we're providing them with assistance directly there. And there are people in emergency shelters, such as schools and mosques, and we're providing with shelter assistance at those places also. One of the benefits of the Syrian Red Crescent is that there is a large volunteer network all throughout the country. And for the last 12 years, for example, throughout the crisis, the Syrian Red Crescent has been responding to needs. Now with this earthquake, there's already been a lot of capacity built, a lot of volunteers trained. So they were able to very quickly spring into action and all throughout the country, they're able to continue to provide those services. But one of the challenges that we are seeing here is we need more resources to continue to provide that. And this is why we're still appealing to our partners internationally to continue to provide funding and other resources for us. President Volodymyr Zelensky says Ukraine's military commanders support strengthening their positions in the embattled eastern town of Bakhmut. Russian forces have surrounded the location on three sides and bombarded it for months, but they've been unable to dislodge the Ukrainian troops. A spokesman for one of the Ukrainian brigades, Mikta Shandiba, said Russia was failing in its objective to capture Bakhmut. 
The enemy has been trying to encircle the city, but from what we can see, it fails. Ukraine holds the line. Our boys heroically defend the city. And we hope that we will keep defending it for longer. The ferocity of the battle for Bakhmut means it's difficult and dangerous for journalists to operate there. Mexican war photographer Narcisco Contreras has been in Bakhmut and is now in the town of Soversk, about 25 kilometers to the north. The city is partially destroyed. I came to meet with the last Norse working for civilians in the city. It has been placed under heavy shelling in the last summer when the offenses of Russians took from the direction of Severodonetsk and Lysychansk. And front line around the city was so intense and the city was under attack constantly. So it's, it's very much destroyed. A lot of civilians still living there though, um, here. Yeah, a lot of civilians are still living in the city. They uh, have refused to leave. I cannot be sure about the, the right numbers at this moment. But during last summer, there were about a few thousand civilians still living in the city. It might be the same number since nothing has changed so far since last summer to now here in, in Siversk city. Meanwhile, there have been reports of complaints from Yevgeny Prigozhin, the leader of the Russian paramilitary force known as Wagner, that the Russian military are deliberately foot-dragging over resupplying his fighters. Nikolai Petrov is a senior research fellow at Chatham House's Russia and Eurasia program. I think, first of all, that Yevgeny Prigozhin's influence is declining. His company Wagner did play a very important role at a time when it was needed for Russian military to train those who've been mobilized. But now they would not like to share responsibility with him. But at the same time, we do see that reserves of Russian troops on munition are limited, and now they should be distributed in much stricter way. That's why there are problems with Wagner private military company, which cannot anymore get ammunition in size needed. And this, together with the fact that his influence is declining, pushes Prigozhin to make these uh, loud, scandalous statements. New research shows that gladiator fights were once staged in Roman-occupied Britain. Tests have proven that the Colchester vase, which depicts a fight between combatants, was locally made and decorated. The vase is nearly two millennia old and was used as a cremation vessel and found in a Roman grave in Colchester in the mid-1800s. Frank Hargrave is director of the Colchester and Ipswich Museums in the east of England. It's absolutely beautiful. It actually shows um, a number of phases that uh, people going to these Roman games would be familiar with. So actually bear baiting as well and, and um, a, a dog chasing a hare and deer um, and different things. So it's not very pleasant, I have to say, to, to our modern eye. But, um, but it, it's, it comes very, very much alive from the, uh, from the past. And actually the two gladiators fighting, the, the retiarius. Um, the, the Valentinus, the, uh, the, the one gladiator has actually got his uh, finger hold, held up in a kind of gesture of submission. Oh, right. um, so we know, we even know who the winner was. Essentially, we've known for a long time, you know, that, that gladiator fights in, in Britain. And this vase was discovered in the 19th century, um, that depicts gladiatorial combat. Um, again, you know, it's, it's pretty clear what, what's been happening there. What's new, this team of researchers, 
has um, identified is, um, is is two key things really. One is that um, the the writing actually on on that, that actually names the gladiators, and that's incredibly rare. We, we only know one other example of that, so we know the names of these gladiators as Memnon and Valentinus. Um, it, we we thought that someone had scratched the names on on top of a, a, a kind of normal piece of um, pottery, if you like. That that, that was a, a sports memorabilia. But in this case, actually, what they, they this, the, the names had been put in very carefully before the pottery had been fired, which means it was a commissioned piece, and it was celebrating a, a specific event that happened, um, presumably in Colchester, uh, one thousand eight hundred years ago. And uh, so, so it's an incredible piece of sporting uh, memorabilia of an actual event oh, that see. would have meant something to someone who who paid for it to be commissioned. The other key bit of information we now know we now know is from the cremation burial that was within it. Often, um, it's not referred to as cremation urns; it's usually kind of a prepaid for itself. But but um, we've done some isotope anal- uh, analysis and some osteo uh, osteoarchaeological analysis of the the human remains, and um, it's of a man. Uh, over 40, um, that's not local to, to Essex. And we can't be sure who, who the man was, but um, uh, certainly someone presumably had a, a close connection to that uh, event uh, you know, over, over 800 years ago. That was Frank Hargrave from the Colchester and Ipswich Museums. Time for a quick look at some business headlines. Mainland officials have expressed confidence they can meet this year's growth target of around 5% by generating 12 million new jobs and encouraging consumer spending. Efforts to revive the Chinese economy have global implications after weak retail, auto and housing sales depressed demand for imports. And stay tuned for the latest financial analysis with Money Talk after the news at 8. Andrew Work will talk with talk markets with Alex Wong at Alex KY Wong Asset Management and founder of Portwood Capital, Peter Churchhouse. Fred Nyan from Bowtie Life Insurance will take a look at the voluntary health insurance scheme and with a view from Japan is John Byrne at the Asian Development Bank Institute. Now, Twitter insiders have been saying that the company is no longer able to protect users from trolling, from trolling state-coordinated disinformation and child sexual exploitation following layoffs and changes under owner Elon Musk, who acquired the platform last year. Exclusive academic data plus testimony from Twitter users backs up their allegations, suggesting hate is thriving under Mr Musk's leadership. The BBC's Mariana Spring reports. I started receiving lots and lots of messages from people who um, were telling me about how the hate that they receive on Twitter, as well as disinformation and other harmful content they've been spotting on their feeds, um, appeared to be on the rise. And so I set out to figure out whether that was true. Um, I heard from all kinds of different people, um, including rape survivors, who've spoken about um, accounts that were previously um, less active before the takeover and now appear to be more active since then, either suggesting that they've been reinstated or or that they're actually totally newly created, sending them really awful hate. Um, Exclusive data for the investigation shows that misogynistic online hate has been um, on the rise with a 69% increase in the in the followings um, of misogynistic and abusive profiles. Um, And the abuse I receive for doing uh, for covering conspiracy theories and disinformation also appears to have tripled since the takeover, according to the University of Sheffield. And so I went to meet current and former insiders um, uh, from Twitter in San Francisco, where Twitter was founded in the US, but also um, here in the UK to, to get answers. And um, they all told me about how features and teams that were designed to protect users from hate and harassment um, 
aren't working in the way they were before. The teams don't exist or the features aren't being maintained. Um, and they describe this chaotic work environment um, in which Musk, um, the new owner, um, goes around the office with these Hollywood-esque bodyguards um, and sells the office plants back to employees, which betrays, in their view, the level of um, distrust that he has for the people in the office and his priorities as well. And that was the BBC's Mariana Spring, and uh, we'll have the sports right after this. Seniors, when you face mental health issues, take the initiative to seek assistance. Never be ashamed to let others know, no matter how things change, care is always available. If you are willing to reach out, you can always find someone nearby to offer care and support. Accept help from others. Join activities that are good for the mind and health and enrich your life. Open your heart. Let's care and share. To learn more, please visit shallwetalk.hk. Time for another look at sports. I'm Adam Jung. We start again with rugby as the draw has been made for this year's Hong Kong Sevens. The hosts will face France, Great Britain and Uruguay in the group stage of the men's tournament. The 2023 edition features an upgraded women's tournament as the SAR's women's and men's teams are simultaneously competing in the Sevens World Series. Hong Kong's women have been drawn to face the World Series leaders New Zealand. The tournament kicks off at Hong Kong Stadium on March 31st. Now we turn to the NBA where the league-leading Milwaukee Bucks bounce back with a win over Washington a day after having their 16-game winning streak snapped by Philadelphia. Let's get the latest from Ray Jovanovich, our U.S. sports commentator who's joined us on the line. Ray, good morning. Good Tuesday morning to you, Adam. It was an incredible weekend of NBA games, particularly for road teams, as there were three big victories for the road teams in in major games that have playoff implications. I actually drove up to Milwaukee this weekend for what became a thriller between the Philadelphia 76ers and the Milwaukee Bucks. The Sixers rallied in the second half to the victory. They scoring, they outscored. Milwaukee in the fourth quarter, 48 to 31, snapping that Bucks 16 game win streak. A week ago, Boston Celtics were in first place. Now it's the Milwaukee Bucks with a game and a half lead, uh, basically on the back of that 16 game win streak. Nothing could phase the Philadelphia 76ers. They scored nearly the same in the fourth quarter as the first half, and Joel Embiid was just magnificent as was James Harden, that dynamic duo leading the uh, Sixers to that victory. Embiid had a late three that sealed the game. Uh, New York Knicks also winning now nine in a row. They defeated the Boston Celtics in Boston in double overtime. They came from behind in that game, another really big one. And finally, the Phoenix Suns over the Dallas Mavericks. And yet another thriller this weekend as Kevin Durant faced off with Kyrie Irving in Dallas, and the Suns had no problem with Dallas despite being on the road. Yeah, and I'm looking at the standings in the Western Conference. Uh, the number four seed uh, Phoenix Suns uh, are only, uh, what, five games ahead of the number 11 seed uh, LA Lakers. So uh, anything can happen in the West. Absolutely. Really shocking, but that's a reflection of the way Phoenix has played a lot of injuries this season. But 
Kevin Durant's been on the court for three games. They've won all three. I think Phoenix has a very good chance, a very good chance for competing for the Western Conference Championship. The Denver Nuggets continue to have a strong lead, six and a half games over the Memphis Grizzlies, and the Memphis Grizzlies have a lot of trouble off the court with John Morant being suspended by the NBA, by the, NBA, by the club. I think two games is too little for the infraction that he's charged with. And you mentioned the Celtics that have pretty much been leading the East all year, but it's been tough for them. Uh, you mentioned they lost in overtime to New York uh, yesterday, and they got Cleveland today, so it doesn't get any easier for them. Not at all. And the Celtics now have lost two in a row. They've only won six of their last ten. They did not look sharp late in that game against the Knicks. The Knicks just had their way with them. Julius Randle was just a force, again, in Boston. So the Celtics have got to regroup here, get back on track. But Milwaukee-Boston, what a battle going on in the Eastern Conference. Yeah, it should be an exciting finish. Ray, thank you so much for the update, as always. That was Ray Jovanovich, our U.S. sports commentator. And before I go, let's get you up to date on the football. Uh, in the English Premier League, there was a West London derby match between Brentford and Fulham, and it finished 3-2 in favor of Brentford. Matthias Jensen's goal on 85 minutes proved to be decisive, despite a late consolation from Carlos Vinicius deep into at a time, which came too late for Fulham. And for now, that's all the sports. Thanks, Atom. Now the weather forecast, a fine and dry, highs expected today of around 24 degrees, winds moderate easterlies. The red fire danger warning is currently in force and the outlook fine and warm in the next couple of days. Visibility relatively low later this week. Right now it's uh, 18 degrees and the relative humidity 45%. It's now half past seven with a new summary. Here's Todd Harding. Chief Executive John Lee says top Beijing official Xia Baolong has called on Hong Kong to be ready to tackle so-called hidden forces seeking to undermine Hong Kong's social stability. Mr Lee was speaking to reporters after flying back from Beijing, where he attended the opening session of the National People's Congress. He said Mr Xia, the director of the Hong Kong and Macau Affairs Office, reminded him that national security risks still exist in the SAR. We will definitely crack down on any forces trying to undermine national security or breach the peace of Hong Kong society or hurt Hong Kong's overall interests and hold them legally responsible under the law. An international meeting of scientists and ethical experts in London has heard that new rules on gene editing have been introduced in China. The mainland is seeking to become a world leader in gene editing techniques. Scientists believe they could be used to correct many inherited diseases. More from the BBC's Palab Ghosh. Gene editing enables researchers to make precise alterations to a person's DNA at an early embryonic stage. But it's not yet been proven to be safe to use in practice. Chinese authorities have recently introduced stricter rules for the use of the technology, setting out requirements for ethical approval, supervision and inspections. A spokesperson for the Chinese Academy of Science told the conference that the country had accelerated the introduction of new laws on gene editing. The head of emergency operations for the Red Cross and Red Crescent says the devastation from the earthquakes that hit Turkey and Syria exactly a month ago remains all but total. Jamie Lasseur was speaking to the BBC from southern Turkey. I've seen a lot of the devastated cities in the affected area. It just goes on and on and on and on. 
And it's surprising and shocking, even for those of us who do this for a living, to see that level of devastation, because it's not just the buildings that have collapsed. It's the social fabric, the restaurants, the banks, the supermarkets that have been destroyed here. Over 50,000 people were killed in both countries. Opposition parties in Turkey have agreed a joint candidate to compete against President Recep Tayyip Erdogan in elections during May. He's Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu, the 74-year-old leader of the Secular Republican People's Party. Here's the BBC's Danny Eberhard. Much is at stake in Turkey's forthcoming presidential and parliamentary elections. Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu will head a disparate anti-Erdogan alliance that's promised to return Turkey to a parliamentary system. In 2018, Turkey switched to the current presidential model, which gave Mr Erdogan sweeping new powers. Opponents accuse him of growing authoritarianism, warning that Turkey risks becoming a dictatorship. Mr Erdogan, whose roots lie in political Islam, has led the country for 20 years. Polls suggest the race will be tight. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Thanks to Todd Harding in our newsroom. This is Hong Kong Today with me, Janice Wong and Vicky Wong. Still to come in the final half hour, we'll talk to WWF Hong Kong after UN member states agree an historic high seas treaty. In Iran, the Supreme Leader speaks about women and girls being poisoned at school and university. If there are individuals behind this, the culprits must face the toughest of punishments. And the last original member of Leonard Skinner dies. But first, the Transport Commissioner says the government is considering tightening health check requirements for commercial drivers. It follows a traffic accident in Fortress Hill on Sunday involving an 84-year-old taxi driver. Maggie Ho reports. Speaking on a commercial radio program, Rosanna Law said while old age does not necessarily mean poor health, checks can reveal any underlying problems. Right now, commercial drivers who are 70 or over have to do a health check every one to three years when they renew their license. We're looking at whether there's room to adjust the age or frequency requirement. But the Transport Commissioner also pointed out that the number of traffic accidents involving older motorists is not particularly higher than the number involving younger people. And the government has no plan to put a cap on the age of commercial drivers. People can be old but healthy and strong, she said. And some people have to keep driving to make ends meet. Meanwhile, Ng Kwan Singh, who chairs the Taxi Dealers and Owners Association, urged the government to promote regular health checks for all drivers. It can work with trade associations or other drivers' groups to promote body checks, Mr Ng told an RTHK program, adding that underlying illnesses don't exist only at a certain age. DAB legislator Ben Chen, for his part, says the government should lower the age requirement for mandatory health screening to drive Drivers aged 65 and above. Maggie Ho reporting. Over the weekend, United Nations members agreed for the first time on a unified treaty to protect biodiversity in the high seas after two weeks of talks in New York. The high seas encompass nearly two-thirds of the ocean and almost half the planet's surface. Marine experts have described the agreement as historic. Charles Clover is executive director of the Blue Marine Foundation. 
Well, this is a historic milestone past because this is a treaty that will enable uh, protected areas to be created in nearly half the Earth's surface, which you couldn't do before. There was no legal mechanism of creating marine protected areas in what are called areas beyond national jurisdiction. So just how important is this treaty and how will it work? To discuss this, we are now joined on the line by Lydia Pang, Interim Head of the Ocean, of Oceans Conservation at WWF Hong Kong. Good morning, Ms. Pang. Morning. Thanks for joining us on the program. Now, many people have uh, called the treaty historic. Why is that? Yes, uh, this is very encouraging uh, progress on oceans conservation. Um, because uh, just like uh, the uh, other experts said, uh, the coverage of the high sea treaties uh, cover a huge program, a huge area of oceans, um, two-thirds of our oceans and cover half surface of our planet. So it provides 95% of available living space on Earth, supporting over 2 million species of marine life. So that's amazing. All right. So, so before this uh, treaty, what's been happening in parts of the ocean that's uh, considered international waters? Mm, so, um, the treaty has um, um, adopted an ambitious target to protect 30% of the area by 2030. Um, at this moment, all countries has the right to fish, to ship, and to research at the high sea, and only one percent is under protection. So um, you can imagine that uh, under this setting, um, there will be unsustainable harvesting and uh, extractions of marine resources, so that um, causing severe impact to our precious marine biodiversity. So um, with this um, um, ocean high sea treaty being in place, uh, there will be a legal framework for us to um, designate um, a marine protected area in the high sea to protect the uh, marine wildlife. So in this treaty, uh, a part of this treaty will include uh, the creation of uh, marine protected areas. Um, how, how big of an area are we looking at? Mm, sorry? A part of this treaty will include the creation of marine protected areas. Mm, mm, mm. So, so how, how big of an area will this include? Um, so, uh, the, we'll be expecting the harvesting, um, activities like harvesting, shipping, and deep sea mining will be managed in an effective uh, approach. Right. And what about the level of protection in these uh, marine protected areas? I mean, was there an agreement on that? Mm, so, uh, we will be uh, um, looking for the um, technicalities to be um, available very soon because uh, now the uh, nations have uh, agreed on the text of the treaties and then coming next they will be uh, coming back to uh, meet again to formally adopt the treaty. So the countries still have to sign and ratify the treaties and agree to implement into their national uh, legislation. So there's still more work to do to uh, uh, put the protection into place. So right now there will be a, uh, a marine protected area, but uh, um, it's not been decided whether this uh, marine protected area will be, uh, I mean, how yeah, it will operate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, uh, where will it be? We still need to be assessed, 
uh, later, and then there will need to be established uh, bodies to um, propose where and how the marine protected area to be managed. Right. In your view, I mean, how should it be operated? I mean, should it be a completely, uh, should it be like fully protected or, or should we just make sure it's uh, sustainable? I mean, the use mm. of the area. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, because I, I think that uh, it has to be specific enough to protect the wildlife and biodiversity. So, um, of course, um, in ex- uh, more protected, like uh, totally no tech will be um, uh, will be gr- good, will be great. But uh, we have to balance like all um, parties. Um, the rights and uh, like um, the developing nations uh, and then how the um, potential of the um, um, uh, marine resources can be um, like a sustainably um, utilized by the uh, planet. And, yeah. apart, and apart from uh, marine protected areas, um, what else is included in the treaty? Mm, um, like um, we also uh, has discussed um, um, like uh, any the marine uh, genetic uh, material, like uh, the houses, is uh, how how is it defined? Like uh, it is a commodity or common goods, and also the how the um, when uh, the people goes to um, like. Uh, use the resources then how the impact assessment is conducted and also there will be strategic environmental assessment uh, to be discussed and and implemented in the part of the oceans treaty right and uh, what will be the next step now i mean uh, when will this uh, treaty actually uh, be implemented legally well, we I expect there will be still need time for the um, nations to work out the technicalities and then to work out how they will uh, put into force um, uh, in the future in their national um, legislation. So we recommend that uh, there will also particularly recommend that uh, the implementation and compliance part, uh, committee to operationalize and enhance cooperation in a meaningful way so that the uh, dispute resolution mechanism is well in place to give an opportunity to, to the state to take action against, uh, against any breaches. All right, so Ms. Pan, we'll have to leave it here for now. Thanks again for joining us this morning. That's uh, Lydia Pang, Interim Head of Oceans Conservation at WWF Hong Kong. It's now 18 minutes to 8 on Hong Kong Today. An international meeting of scientists and ethical experts has heard concerns that new rules on gene editing introduced in China aren't tough enough to stop medical malpractice. China is seeking to become a world leader in the field. But one expert told the conference in London that the Chinese authorities may struggle to regulate the private sector. The BBC's Palab Ghosh reports. Gene editing enables researchers to make precise alterations to a person's DNA at an early embryonic stage, but it's not yet been proven to be safe to use in practice. There was an outcry at claims five years ago by Chinese scientists that he'd created children that had been genetically altered to be resistant to HIV. Dr. He Jian Qiu was imprisoned for three years. Chinese authorities have recently introduced stricter rules for the use of the technology, setting out requirements for ethical approval, supervision and inspections. But Dr. Joy Zhang, an expert on controls on gene technology in China, 
told delegates at the gene editing meeting in London that she was concerned that Dr. Hay was able to set up clinical research on another inherited disorder a year after his release from prison. We could actually be looking at a quite simple case of regulatory negligence. Who is keeping an eye on, on him and what kind of approval he has and uh, he needs to seek? Any talk of accountable research or uh, good governance in China would be hypocritical. A spokesperson for the Chinese Academy of Science told the conference that the country had accelerated the introduction of new laws on gene editing and they were in accordance with international standards. But other scientists at the meeting backed the view that China's regulation of gene editing may still fall short, particularly when it comes to keeping an eye on private companies. Others, though, say it's not an issue only for the Chinese. And Western nations, too, need to keep a close eye on how bioscience firms forge ahead with this exciting but controversial technology. Disputes over Japan's brutal 35-year occupation of Korea before and during the Second World War have long poisoned relations between Tokyo and Seoul. There have been some attempts to agree Japanese compensation over its actions, but in recent years the row has erupted again. Now South Korea has agreed to pay compensation itself to Korean victims of Japanese forced labor. Korean survivors have criticized the deal. They want Japan to pay and apologize. Here's the co-chairman of victims' groups. The government says it's a done deal now with the announcement of the solution to forced labor. But this is invalid both legally and in terms of public sentiment. We won't stop marching vigorously until it's scrapped. It's so pitiful. The government is pushing ahead with pro-Japanese trade negotiations that trample on the established legal rights of its citizens and exempt Japanese war criminal enterprises from legal responsibility. It is unacceptable violence. So why is South Korea paying if Japan is responsible? The BBC's Jean McKenzie explains. This agreement is actually, as you've hinted at, about so much more than just compensating these victims for the horrendous conditions that they were forced to work in during Japan's occupation of Korea, in Japanese factories and Japanese mines. They were treated appallingly, they were paid nothing, and they were, in their words, treated as slaves. Relations between these two countries have been marred for decades because of these issues stemming back to the colonial period, and this has been one of the final sticking points. So when the South Korean president, the new president, came to office last year, he promised to mend relations with Japan. This was his sort of flagship foreign policy, but it was really this issue he was going to have to resolve to move things forward. And so he's found a way, albeit an unpopular one, because the Japanese companies are off the hook and South Korean companies are going to step in and foot the bill. But South Korea has been working with Japan behind the scenes for this on months. They knew the Japanese companies wouldn't pay. And so this was going to be the only way to move forward. Iran's supreme leader Ayatollah Ali Khamenei has described the poisoning of thousands of women and girls in schools and universities across the country as an unforgivable crime. His comments are the first he's made publicly about the attacks and have now forced the authorities to take the poisoning seriously after they first refused to acknowledge them. The poisonings began in November in the city of Qom and have put hundreds of victims in hospital with breathing problems, nausea and fatigue. At least 5,000 students have been targeted. Ayatollah Khamenei spoke earlier in Tehran. 
If there are individuals behind this, the relevant governing bodies, enforcement and information bodies must pursue this and find leads in this crime. The culprits must face the toughest of punishments. The BBC's Baron Abassi has more details on what the leader said. Heartbreaking videos of school children being sick has been uh, circulating on social media and pressure is growing on officials to show some kind of responsibility. Yesterday, the president said that the enemies of Iran, as he called it, and also Persian language media based abroad are responsible for this. And they're blaming, as usual, the foreign enemies of Iran, as they describe it. He said that those involved in this, they must be arrested and brought to justice and they must be handed down the maximum punishment, which could be the death penalty. He said that those responsible will not be offered any amnesty. But up to now, the uh, officials had tried to play down all the cases and all the reports of poisoning, saying that it's nothing serious and nobody has died and that maybe students are just trying to avoid their final exams by pretending to be sick. Wednesday is International Women's Day and in an effort to achieve this year's theme of embracing equality, Spain's Prime Minister has announced a major plan. The cabinet is set to approve the rules later today, which would require women to make up at least 40% of management of any medium to large company and require political parties to put up equal numbers of male and female candidates during elections. So what do people in the capital Madrid think? There are only few women in very big positions, you know. I mean, we have always fought for our rights. We have always have to fight and we have always have to use the laws, you know, to get something. But I think in Spain is the only way to get there. I am a little bit fed up of, of men telling me what to do, you know, because uh, and they are all, all the time telling us what to do, you know. People want to, but if you don't uh, make a rule about this, we don't have this. If you want to make a change, you need to make a law, I think. Well, if they are considering, probably there is uh, um, something to improve. But uh, as a person that lives here, I can't feel any unbalance. Women are very integrated in a, in a society, no? Madrid-based journalist Lily Mayers has more details on the proposed law. It's early days. Uh, This was just announced over the weekend. We're expecting more details to come out. But gender quotas are always a controversial topic in business. And these proposed changes are very far-reaching. I've just spoken with one of Spain's leading law firms, Cuatro Casas. Their partner specialising in equality and diversity, Almudena Batista Jimenez, says that whether this is democratically correct or not is a very difficult topic. Some companies do favour quotas, particularly as a temporary measure to achieve equality with the idea that they will eventually not be needed, whereas others, including many women, don't approve of quotas because, well, it implies that we're being hired on the basis of gender, not merit, which can be starting a position or a job on the back foot. Right now, there's not enough strong details about the requirements uh, of the women and the men going for the jobs or on the boards for clients to rush to their lawyers concerned about the new measures at this point. I think everyone in the business sector will need more details before they start making judgments on this. The coalition government is a partnership between the Socialist Party, PSOE, and the leftist party, Unidos Podemos. And they're governing in a 
minority. So they have traditionally have quite a hard time passing these quite ambitious equality measures. But last year, the coalition introduced a number of measures. There was the only yes means yes law. It makes consent or lack of it a key determinant in assault cases. And that was Madrid-based journalist Lily Mayers. Now to some business headlines. Apple's biggest supplier, Foxconn, says its revenue last month fell more than 11% compared to the same period in 2022 due to weaker demand for electronics. But the company said operations at the world's biggest iPhone factory in Zhengzhou were recovering from COVID disruptions. Tesla has cut prices for its electric cars again as it tries to boost sales and compete with rival firms. They follow a big mark they follow big markdowns of up to 20% that the firm introduced in January. Last year, Tesla missed its 2022 target of increasing its deliveries by 50% annually, a shortfall the firm blamed on supply strain constraints and a weakening economy. The French government says it's made a deal with major retailers to cap many food prices in a bid to make inflationary pressures easier to bear for consumers. The country's finance minister said retail groups would cut prices for a wide range of foodstuffs to the lowest possible level until June, under what he called an anti-inflation quarter. France's National Statistics Institute recorded food inflation was 14.5% in February year on year. He was the last remaining original member of the American rock band Leonard Skinner. Now, Gary Rossington has died at the age of 71. The guitarist had appeared on all their albums and co-wrote their smash hit Sweet Home Alabama in 1974. The BBC's David Silito looks back at his life. Originally conceived as a way of giving the vocalist Ronnie Van Zant a bit of a rest, the epic Freebird became the band's defining song, and it began with Gary Rossington's slide guitar. Gary Rossington from Jacksonville, Florida, was one of the original members of the band which had been named after a PE teacher who had objected to his long hair. Their big break was supporting the who it was only two weeks but it just changed everything for us you know we never seen so many people especially to play in front of it was like crazy that's when we first started drinking we never drank and it scared us so bad we started drinking and we got a bottle from the who it was his riff that turned into another of their hits sweet home alabama but this was a group that had more than its share of misfortune Gary Rossington was in the 70s seriously injured in a plane crash that killed three members of the band. There was also a near-fatal car crash, drug addiction, and in recent years, heart attacks. But he continued to perform. His last concert was in February, ending, of course, with Freebird. That's the BBC's David Silito. Coming up next here in Hong Kong today, more sport. Doing housework after a long, busy day can be frustrating. Why not seek help from professionals? Download the ERB Home Services mobile application to enjoy one-stop free referral of local domestic helpers who are well-trained by the Employees Retraining Board. Services include cleaning and cooking, as well as postnatal, elderly, and infant care. For details, please call 182182 or visit erb.org. 
Time for our last look at sports. I'm Adam Jung. The draw has been made for this year's Hong Kong Sevens. The hosts will face France, Great Britain, and Uruguay in the group stage of the men's tournament, while the defending champions Australia take on Spain, USA, and Japan. The 2023 edition features an upgraded women's tournament as the SAR's women's and men's teams are simultaneously competing in the Sevens World Series. Hong Kong's women have been drawn in a pool that includes the World Series leaders New Zealand. The tournament kicks off at Hong Kong Stadium on March 31st. Next to the NBA, where the Boston Celtics are about to tip off against the Cleveland Cavaliers in a top-four clash in the Eastern Conference. The Celtics entered the game trailing the Milwaukee Bucks by a game and a half, despite having led the East for most of the season. More from RTHK's Ray Jovanovich. A week ago, Boston Celtics were in first place. Now, it's the Milwaukee Bucks with a game-and-a-half lead, uh, basically on the back of that 16-game win streak. New York Knicks also winning now nine in a row. They defeated the Boston Celtics in Boston in double overtime. They came from behind in that game, another really big one. And the Celtics now have lost two in a row. They've only won six of their last ten. They did not look sharp late in that game against the Knicks. The Knicks just had their way with them. Julius Randle was just a force again in Boston. So the Celtics have got to regroup here, get back on track. But Milwaukee-Boston, what a battle going on in the Eastern Conference. The Brazilian football star Neymar has promised to come back stronger after Paris Saint-Germain announced that the player will require ankle surgery and will be out for three to four months. More from the BBC's Mass Faruqi. It's been a bit of a miserable time for Neymar, hasn't it? Brazil, of course, didn't have a great Qatar World Cup and then his return to PSG picked up a serious ankle sprain on February the 20th, the latest of what the club described as several episodes of instability in his right ankle in recent years. And following this, medical staff, the club continued, recommended a ligament repair operation to avoid a major risk of recurrence. That surgery is expected to take place in Doha. PSG confirmed it will then be three to four months until he returns to training. Neymar. This shouldn't have too much bearing, of course, on PSG's progress in Liga. They have an eight-point lead at the top of the table. But as ever, it's Neymar's influence in the European Champions League, where his absence will be keenly felt. They play at Bayern Munich on Wednesday in the second leg of their last 16 tie. They're trailing 1-0 after the first leg. And they're going to be definitely without their Brazil international now for the rest of the season, PSG. Tonight, Chelsea will try to overturn a first-leg deficit against Borussia Dortmund in their Champions League last 16 tie. The German side take a 1-0 lead into Stamford Bridge. Chelsea forward João Felix says his team feel relaxed ahead of the game. Zero pressure. I think it's this is our job. Uh, we just have to enjoy, win the games. Uh, and yeah, but yeah, our levels of confidence and attention are high. Uh, because you have to win, but yeah, we will enjoy, and if we, we do the, the things right, we will win. I'm here to, to play my football, to, to help the team, to help the club, try to win trophies with that club. Uh, I just fight for that, to win trophies, uh, play to my team. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm on loan, but the time I'm, I'm here, I want to help, I want to play, I want to score, I want to win. 
On the pitch, Brentford defeated Fulham 3-2 in the Premier League's West London derby. Matthias Jensen's goal on 85 minutes proved to be decisive, despite a late consolation from Carlos Vinicius, deep into at a time which came too late for Fulham. There was one game in Spain's La Liga. It finished goalless between Osasuna and Celta Vigo. Osasuna are three points outside the top six. And in the Italian Serie A, Sassuolo defeated Cremonese 3-2. Cremonese Remain nine points from safety. In a mid table clash, Torino were 1 0 winners over Bologna. And that's your look at sports. Thanks, Adam. Before we go today, the weather forecast a fine and dry with a top temperature of around 24 degrees. Winds moderate easterlies. The red fire danger warning is currently in force. Right now, it's 19 degrees, relative humidity 49%.